all CEOs, me included, we don't actually know what we're doing. They're all sharks, so all you got to do, though, is no shark bait. I don't think we've ever talked about this before. <laughs> we can capture all of the wallet share. First place you start is with the product. That's just the first nut. This is the Capital Stack. Hey, everybody, this is David Paul, the host of the Capital Stack podcast, where I talk to founders, operators, and investors about all things value creation in startups. Today, I am talking to Dr. Alan Roga, who is a 25-year medical professional. He is a doctor. He has run emergency departments within hospital systems before he transferred to the entrepreneurial journey where he became a leader in uh, healthcare tech-enabled service companies, as well as healthcare IT companies. He founded a company called Stat Doctors, which was an early telemedicine platform. This was before telemedicine was cool. And he had a million lives on it, raised $11 million, sold it to Teladoc within six years. Uh, after Teladoc, he became president prior to becoming the chief operations, uh, where he had numerous um, uh, purviews of, of, of leadership. He scaled uh, operations over numerous product lines, participated in the IPO process, was a part of 12 acquisitions, and in 2020, uh, grew to 10 million virtual patient visits. So quite a big resume. I don't know why he's talking to me. Dr. Roga, how are you? Uh, I'm good, David. Thank you. Thank you for the introduction. It always sounds better hearing it from somebody else. We all we all know our shortcomings. Yeah, exactly. Uh, well, I pulled all this from your LinkedIn profile, so was, you made it very easy for me. Fair enough. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, so, tell me about what you're doing now. I mean, we the the, the telemedicine um, story. I'm sure you told a a, a lot. Um, I guess we could start there. Like, went from going healthcare IT, seeing a bunch of patient lives, being a part of a big digital health company. How did how did you transition from that into True Health? Yeah, you know, I think uh, I learned, and we're always on a never-ending journey to learn. I think that's one common characteristic I think that leaders do possess, which is curiosity. Uh, and for me, one of the things I learned is constructive discontent is a very powerful motivator. So working in the ER for years, leading practice management groups, I was again chairman of assistant assistance responsible quality. You, you see where the holes are. And at the end of the day, I just got tired of charging someone $2,000 because their child had pink eye and ended up in the ER through no fault of their own, really just because they couldn't get in to see the primary care doctor and all the challenges of the healthcare system. And I thought through technology, we can improve access, outcomes, and costs. And so back in 2009, as you said before, it was cool to do so. I uh, started a telemedicine company, not because I knew that telemedicine would take off or certainly that a pandemic would hit and we'd be taking care of millions of people globally, but that the foundational principle of do we always need to be in person to do healthcare seemed like something that was misaligned with what the customer wanted, what the patient wanted. And... Um, it found fertile footing. But like with most entrepreneurial endeavors, uh, it's never problem to resolution and everything goes in a straight line, right? 
mean, you get to sort of think up your idea, and then guess what? Pretty much every medical board in the United States wanted to shut down telemedicine. Uh, in fact, it was not met with approval, really because the regulatory status was unclear. And so we had a fight for a lot of patients' lives, including you know, suing the Texas Medical Board seven times uh, to champion for the rights of patients in Texas. And really, I would say that the medical board was really just looking for the best interests of their patients, but we're not totally informed on the value of virtual care. And I'm glad we did that because obviously COVID came along and we would have been in big trouble if telemedicine wasn't in uh, in place by then. And that really uh, was a catalyst for substantial adoption of telemedicine where now it's you know, mainstream in our healthcare delivery. Uh, but back in the mid-2000s, I would say if it wasn't for you know, myself and a few other pioneers in the industry, we probably would not have had virtual care. Uh, and not only is it virtual care, now most meetings are virtual, right? You and I are doing this virtually. Uh, so we've, we've clearly adopted that we don't have to be in person, which can lead to efficiency, outcomes, cost, quality, and all things that health, healthcare has to address. So, you know, a little bit of the journey and then how I got to True Light Health was, you know, studying health equity found also problems that matter. I think good entrepreneurs and my philosophy is simple, which is I just want to fix problems worth fixing with people I like working with. Uh, and so studying health equity and I'll probably take a pause here, but found that healthcare is not equitable and that it has a compelling uh, need, both morally and financially, for our healthcare system. And so found myself doing another startup at this stage of the same principle, which is constructive discontent, right? Getting a little unhappy about what we're doing, not to the point of it being negative, but how can we fix this issue that matters is an important component, I think, for every entrepreneur. Sure, sure. And so definitely want to unpack health equity and what you're doing at uh, True Light. Just to step back a little bit on telemedicine, despite the path that you and the others that you described as uh, pushing forward the telemedicine journey, even still in 2020, there was like some EOs that had to be executed, right, in order to get people seen. Um, I don't know if that was making Zoom, HIPAA client, or, or something in and around that, but how do you how do you speak like who were the incumbents? I mean, I I, you're, I think you're being a little too nice, right? And saying that it was just a lack of information on on patient care. I'm sure there were some people that were going to lose some money from that care. That's all, always what it comes down to, right? I, I learned from a venture capitalist, but like yourself, experienced a long time ago. What asked me just a key question when we were doing different startups? He said, "Whenever you're doing something different, people are going to like it. Who doesn't like it? Like who are you pissing off?" Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, so I always ask myself those questions of, and if you can keep that pool small, then usually you have a good idea. Uh, and ultimately, you know, for the medical boards, who they were concerned about quality and safety, but really it also came down to the financials, which were, you know, was telemedicine going to be taking money away from the local practitioners in the state? And is it good, high quality care? So it needed to evolve long enough to the point where we could go, we've done a million patient care counters with no bad outcomes. That's probably a good enough pool to prove that this is safe medicine. In fact, it has lower error rates than in-person medicine in, in many, uh, in many sort of use cases. And by the way, this can be also a revenue stream for physicians and another way to doing care and can reduce internal operating expenses. So once those things came to light, 
you really had a catalyst and an accelerant. But in the beginning, it was really challenging. And you had to essentially go through just sound foundational principles of what are the value drivers here? What's the science we can draw from? But to your point, really, the the resistance was more around, is it going to erode the financial success and viability of local practitioners? Uh, and that was a key driver. Yeah, uh, Bill Gurley said something recently on a um, a speech on regulatory capture. He said, regulations always favor being public. Right, right. Yeah, and that's right. I mean, you know, but uh, to be fair, uh, there were... I think there were a lot of well-intended medical board leaders who just really were trying to be cautious and were trying to do no harm in healthcare. Uh, but it was interesting discussions early on of, I had once a physician that said, well, you know, I'm not sure that your care is sound. And this is very early in telemedicine. I said, wait, we have a million patient care accounts and there's no bad outcomes. Today, if you're seeing a patient that you're covering for another clinician, you have no idea who the patient is. You actually don't even probably have the records. You're doing it over the telephone to make a diagnosis and call in some sort of treatment because of the efficiency of the telephone. We have medical records, video, drug-drug interactions with electronic prescriptions, documentation, information sent to the primary care doctor. I would argue our encounter is actually safer than yours. Uh, and then, you know, then people start connecting the dots. And then the state of North Carolina says telemedicine is safe, but South Carolina still has questions. And you go, well, does a urinary tract infection differ based by North Carolina or South Carolina or bronchitis differ? And then, you know, the momentum starts to build. But in the early, the early innings, you have to go through, you know, your foundational value drivers and why you think it's a good idea. Um, but the regulators were definitely set up for the incumbents. Um, and then I think the incumbents sort of joined the movement. You know, now I went to go see my doctor and they forced me to do a telemedicine visit. I actually wasn't even allowed to go into the office despite COVID <laughs> being on the downswing right now. Right. So, you know, it is it has changed materially. Um, I think the latest statistics I saw were somewhere around nine to ten percent of all encounters are virtual. And so some would argue, well, that's not a big enough, you know, hasn't been a big enough swing. And uh, the other more practical like me would say that's a lot of people in a very big yeah, <laughs> healthcare system where, you know, not everybody can afford to miss a day of work and drive for an hour and sit in an office for four hours and drive back home. Right. That's not always easy. You can't always access the best specialist in your neighborhood. You have to do it virtually at times. So there's a lot of value that's been created there. This is how markets uh, evolve, you know, and you've probably seen it, but Harvard Business School, and this has been studied numerous times, the closer you are to the market, the less capital you have to raise, right? So the farther you are from the market, the more capital you have to raise. And we were making a market in telemedicine. So it was 15 years till Teladoc first started till COVID hit in 2020 and billions of dollars of capital to build a market now that is estimated in the, you know, tens of billions, if not more than that, as a total addressable market. But that's what it takes in the beginning is not only the establishment of the market, but all the regulatory issues and technology issues and product issues and adoption issues that are that crossing the chasm we've all you know seen in our tech adoption lifecycle training. Now, now we're in the you know, Q4 of 2023. You know, funding has 
you know, very much clenched up, especially in digital health, telemedicine for X. What would you say is the best advice you would give early entrepreneurs in this space? Do you think the space got too crowded? I mean, like, I get like your overview up, up at top, and and then I guess what what you would do if you were running your company today. Yeah, and there's a couple in there, right? One is around general financing market, and the other is telemedicine. So I'll take the telemedicine side, and then maybe we'll talk about general finance as well, because they are they are intermixed, right? Without the capital, it's hard to continue to innovate and invest in R&D resources. But in the early beginnings of telemedicine, look, telemedicine's always been an industry with a low barrier to entry and a really high bar to success and scale. So in the beginning, I would see, you know, when telemedicine started to catch on, you see a couple of doctors do a webcam, they go, we're a telemedicine company. And no, there's a lot more than doing that. You know, it's not just the video. In fact, the technology is probably the least... Uh, the video is probably the least impactful component of the technology because it's all plug and play. It's the workflow, it's the operational support, it's the adoption, it's the user experience, it's the quality. So in the beginning, everybody wanted to do a telemedicine company and you saw market consolidation, right? Markets started with Teladoc doing urgent care and American Well and then other companies with behavioral health and then dermatology and second opinion. And then you start to see consolidation. So the companies become bigger, multi-product, multi-market companies, bigger entities like the ones I mentioned. Um, and so early on, everyone thought, well, I, I can just do a telemedicine company. I think starting a enterprise-level telemedicine company would be very challenging now with some of the large ones that are in the space right now that are, you know, billions of dollars of revenue and lots of patients' lives. But what I see now a lot are um, new delivery uh, uh, new delivery methodologies that are provided through telemedicine. So as an example, you know, GI telemedicine practices, specialist telemedicine practices, chronic care management telemedicine practices, where instead of the old model, which were a group of smart clinicians came up with a better way to deliver care and then did it locally, now everyone is doing that with a virtual lens to deliver their care on a national scale. So I think you know, if I was if I were in the space or wanting to be in the space, trying to go after Teladoc and the big companies, that's going to be pretty challenging. And I don't know that the capital will be there. But um, alongside of it, coming up with a capability that aligns through telemedicine, not only is an unmet need in the market, but a very desirable asset for the big entities that are still looking to grow product, product capability. So, you know, the acquisition threshold, I think, will be high as long as they can show success in those companies. So is the value for an early stage telemedicine company, the network of doctors that they would have or providers? I think it's more around the problem that you're solving and then you align your providers to it. So, you know, diabetes care, as an example, is an expensive initiative, although there's a lot of people that are obviously focusing on diabetic care or chronic disease management. But just taking that as an example, if you've got a better way to tackle that one and you're doing it through telemedicine, then you get your providers together. But showing excellence in a subset of the market focus through telemedicine, I think is still very much an open area for innovation. I think trying to build a national platform, an international platform for telemedicine, like it's all that, I think that's going to be pretty tough. Yeah. All right. True light. Tell me a little bit about true light, the problem that it's solving. We talked about inequality or inequity. 
specifically around healthcare. Uh, it's been a big topic for those people following it. You can't really open up a Becker's newsletter without people talking about it. But it kind of seems like a, uh, a a top of mind, but not a top of action behavior within healthcare. So I'd love to know what True Light's doing in order to change that. Yeah, I, uh, I think that's a really good synopsis, by the way. And so maybe I'll share a little bit of my journey into the space and then give you an update on what I see in the sector. So as you mentioned, in, uh, in 2020, I was in charge of chief clinical operations officer in charge of COVID and all the other stuff and had, you know, 13 million virtual care visits and 40,000 providers during COVID. I mean, it was busy. Um, got through it. We all saw what happened to George Floyd and his murder. And I said, look, I need to learn something about health equity. If I'm leading all these clinicians and patients, I, I should know something about this, despite training in New York, in the Bronx, and growing up in an ethnically diverse neighborhood, I didn't even, I can't even know there was such a thing as health equity. I thought people are treated the same. Um, and I was surprised at how wrong that was. Uh, so found a few things. First is that um, on an outcomes basis, our healthcare is not equitable in the United States. If you pick any measure that's out there, if you are not white, male, educated, have some money, live in an urban zip code, lack physical disability, straight. You need to check all those boxes. If any of those are missing, your outcome is worse. Doesn't matter what you pick. Diabetic, diabetes, high blood pressure, common cancers, maternity. I mean, maternal rates are almost horrific in the United States. If you're a black woman, you're safer having your baby in Mongolia, Egypt, and Mexico than in the wealthiest country in the world. If you're Native American, you'll live longer in the Congo than in the U.S. Uh, if you're in rural America, you have about a 10% increase in your mortality for your pregnancy, even if you match for clinical condition and socioeconomics. So there are disparities everywhere, which was pretty surprising to me. But what we also found is that it cost the U.S. health. No, just to, like, I mean, that's a huge state, right? So like, what's like, what's the cause of that? Is that access to care? Or is that, you know, is that just, or is that just like the, the, the treatment to care was designed on and templated off of, you know, the, the, the white persona? Like what, what is, what, what are the causes of all these? It's a little bit of all of those things. So equity in general is not just a singular solution or else we would have solved it a long time ago. Right. And so the causes are multifactorial. They are clinical, social, and behavioral in their context. And so to address it as a system issue, because it's really not as much of an individual issue. It's not that a clinician is intentionally biasing against the patient. I mean, of course, there's a subset of the world where that occurs, but the overwhelming majority are not those conditions. But systemically, we have adopted a system that does have a component bias in it. Uh, and so what we ended up as we were researching the space, found that outcomes were poor and that it cost the system about a trillion dollars. And then as we, and in the individual patient level, by the way, it's $5,300 per year more if you are black or Latin with a chronic illness and nobody knows why. So those were morally and economically compelling reasons to enter the sector. The second thing that I, that I learned, that the team learned, is that I thought it would all be socioeconomics. I thought healthcare is a money-driven system. It's capitalistic. And it's not that simple. Even when you match for socioeconomics, there are a lot of disparate outcomes. So if you are a black woman today and you have a PhD and you make a high salary, 
you have three times the chance of dying from your pregnancy as a white woman with a high school degree and makes minimum wage. In fact, the unnecessary C-section rate in black women actually paradoxically goes up with increasing education. So it's not just as simple as it's a money or an access issue. Mm -hmm. And as we were looking at the sector, what we really landed on is that we think there is foundational clinical bias in healthcare. So whether, and we talk about the domains of bias, which is our working framework to address this issue. So whether it's the tools we use, so as an example, you might have read during COVID about the pulse oximeter, the low oxygen probe that measures oxygen levels. Well, it underestimates oxygen levels in people with darker pigmented skin. We've known that for three decades. So during COVID, a lot of people miss treatment and trials because that pulse oximeter is not totally accurate in people of color. The research that we do lack diversity in the clinical trials. So the pharma companies are trying to get their products out in market. It's been much harder to get diverse patients to sign up for clinical trials. There's a lot of distrust in healthcare. And so most of the treatments have been studied on the white populations. We're not even sure if a lot of them actually work in the diverse populations. In fact, a lot of studies now are showing that they don't. And then there are practitioner-related biases. So in the ER literature, which is my world, if you break your arm, you get about half the pain medicine. If you're not white, then if you're white. So there are tools, practitioner bias, research that we do as working framework. And we felt that if someone could get to care, so if they can afford to get to care, if they have access to care, if they are competent, if they have medical literacy, they're still going to be subject to this foundational bias, that system level that needs to be addressed. And that's what we decided to do. So that's, that's, that's what we start to uh, uh, attack. And I think this is a market that's forming, which are, you need, to your point, like, wh why is this? Well, you need to address social determinants of health, right? Individuals' health-related social needs need to be addressed. You need to address medical literacy. You need to have cultural competent providers. You need to have data and analytics. And we've decided to enter the space and complement the market with the first health equity platform that addresses clinical bias. And so from a product perspective, what does that look like? Yeah. So what we've done is we've consolidated the world's largest health equity knowledge base. So we started with chronic illnesses and maternity. So it, being in healthcare a long time, it has to save money or make money have staying power, right? No matter how good it feels and morally justified, these are what I have to do. So we start with expensive illnesses, chronic diseases, and maternity because those outcomes are terrible. And we consolidated this knowledge base of peer-reviewed articles, New England Journal, JAMA, the big ones. We take the relevant clinical elements because most docs don't have time to read anymore. The job's gotten really hard. So we take the clinical elements, and what the technology does is it integrates directly into a health system's electronic record. We grab personalized patient information from the electronic record. So you go see your doctor. We grab your information. We add social data from publicly available data sets. We run it against our knowledge base to find where that individual's care has been impacted by race, gender, orientation, zip code, and then we action it. So in the workflow, clinical recommendations are provided not just to the doctor, but to the entire care team. So nurses, care coordinators, social workers, MAs, because this is a safety initiative. Safety is everyone's responsibility and organizational scale is everyone's responsibility. So we provide that in the workflow. We also provide it to the patient. So middle school reading level available, multiple languages to create advocacy. We followed up with a coaching session. 
So coaching is to create patient advocacy, to ensure literacy, to redirect the patient to help relate social needs. And so we developed this role in partnership with the Morehouse School of Medicine as the market's first certified health equity coaching program. And then we use nudging to keep it actionable because we're all busy and you've got to do behavioral change. So we drive clinical, social, and behavioral interventions to specifically remediate clinical bias as a way to improve outcomes and costs for diverse populations. That's basically it. And so is the coaching on the patient side or the provider side? Coaching is on the provider, the patient side. Providers are included, but often, you know, they're, they're busy, right? Docs, nurses, the job is super hard. And maybe what will help is if I give you a, like a, an example, if I package it up. Um, yeah. So let's just say with one disease, asthma, right? Very prevalent disease, wheezing, lung issues. So if someone comes to me in an ER and urgent care center is wheezing, they probably get an albuterol, a little pump, and they go home. But here's what we know, just on asthma. So the measure of lung functions, the pulmonary function test, actually race corrects. It says that a black person's lungs are 10 to 20% weaker than a white person's lungs, Asian 6 to 10%. So it's missing disease progression. It's actually underestimating disease severity. The oxygen level, pulse ox we talked about, underestimates oxygen levels, and it's actually threefold increase for what's called hypoxemia, which is insufficient oxygen. Right? Albuterol, that commonly used pump, doesn't work as well in the white population, and then the first population, I should say, because 97% of the clinical trials were in the white population. So we may want to add a second medication if the patient's not responding, and we can get air quality index, proximity to a primary care doctor, so right now, if a patient comes to me that's wheezing, who's diverse, they get up, you don't go home, but we can remove the pulmonary function test race correction formula that shows their lungs are impaired. They might want to get additional tests on their oxygen levels instead of relying just on the pulse ox. Add another medicine in addition to the albuterol and determine are they at risk because air quality is poor and they don't have a primary care doctor to do some other social interventions. So statistically speaking, that patient's three to five times more likely to end up in the ER and be hospitalized absent any of these interventions. That's how we practically bring this to light right in the workflow to let the care team and the patient be aware that these are things that are impacting your care that we should be actioning towards. That's how we bring it together. That's incredible. And so from our, you have a, obviously a huge research team that's pulling this data, making taxonomies in order to deliver it in a way that's super digestible. Can you tell me a little bit about how you want to work within workflow to, to make that um, a top of mind for physicians yeah. that have to see 32 patients a day? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, we had two foundational principles when we started the company and the co-founder was the uh, CTO of Common Spirit, so a lot of health system knowledge. One was don't let IT resources be a barrier because every health system is challenged with their IT resources. So we made implementation really easy. And the other is don't alienate the physicians. So it's got to be easy for them to use. And the good part is we've been successful at that. So um, we integrate directly into the electronic record and we leverage the fire standards and a lot of these standard uh, ways to exchange data. And so we're always grabbing patient data in the background, and then we're algorithmically exposing the recommendations for the specific patient. So it's a personalized approach, 
but it's right in the workflow. We do have a prompt. So, but it's a configuration. So if you want to force the physicians to read everything and the nurses and the care team, you can, that's not our recommendation. We have found with new technology adoption to let people self-serve, find the value, and then they become your champions. So there's a prompt that there's health equity information. The clinician clicks on, and again, not just a doc, we leverage the whole team. They review it and then are actioning it. What we're finding too is that as a safety initiative, everybody has a piece of this. So whether it's the physician who's prescribing or the nurse who's ensuring education or the medical assistant who's discharging the patient, it's being touched on multiple times. And the main emotion that's been evoked on the patient side has been validation. I knew I was getting different care. I just never knew how. Now you're explaining to me, I feel better about you. So paradoxically, there is a concern of, you know, am I at odds with my patient now because I'm letting them be aware that there are some factors beyond my control that are science-based that are impacting their care. The, the exact opposite is they actually feel better about the clinical team because you're acknowledging this is in existence. So I see this market being essentially created by true light. The hospital executives that are have some kind of initiative from their board to, you know, incorporate TPI practices within uh, their patient experience or identify health equity strategies. What else are they looking at? I mean, I'm sure it's just like we have money to spend here, but where are we going to, how are they doing it? How do you compare to what, how other people are, are attacking the industry? So a couple of things that I think you mentioned that are important. One is that I'll start with the, the market part and then go to the health system side. So I do think that this is a new market that's forming. You know, similar to virtual care where you start with urgent care and the dermatology and behavioral health and there was a lot of consolidation. You're seeing companies in the health equity space. Some are social determinants of health focused. Some are data and analytics focused. And we are platform focused as a clinical tool. Uh, but this is a market that's forming. Um, there is a lot of validation of that through what we talked about earlier, a lot of the regulatory drivers. So there are massive regulatory ones for health equity. So the Joint Commission, which is the association that accreditates a lot of inventory care in hospitals, as of July 1, has made health equity a national patient safety goal. And there are six requirements health systems will have to do. The good news is we align to basically all of them except giving you a health equity leader. So the Joint Commission is, is, is politely prompting for a 2025, you know, these are requirements that have to be done. CMS has started the uh, ACO reach model and now other payment methodologies to follow where dollars are being tied to health equity. The FDA has required late stage clinical trials to have diversity plans. Um, which also translates into dollars and capital for not only life sciences, but providers and payers. So you're seeing a lot of the Biden-Harris administration has made birthing centers and health equity a, a priority. So you're seeing a lot of regulatory tailwinds. That's good. That's what's driving a lot of the market dynamics. And then I think what you indicated around health system interests. So we surveyed over 100 hospital hospital executives. And there's no question that health equity is a top five priority from almost every health system. The challenges I think you're seeing are market development, which is first off, there's not extra dollars for health equity. So financially challenged health systems that are coming up for air post COVID 
still have to find dollars to purchase health equity solutions. And the other part is just the uh, organizational inertia of large, complex uh, consensus-based buying processes like health systems. And by the way, pharma and and payers, which also have um, desires in the health equity space. But what you're seeing is there isn't somebody who went to work today saying my accountability is to purchase a health equity platform. Right now, it's a lot of market education. Uh, health systems are forming steering committees. We've seen new roles develop, which are health equity officers. Often it's a chief health equity officer um, who is responsible for clinical quality. And they complement the DE&I initiatives, which are more the HR people functions, whereas a health equity leader is looking at clinical quality, usually it's a diverse position. So you've got health equity officers as a new role. You have steering committees being formed of multi-cross-sectional uh, stakeholder groups, IT teams, quality teams, clinicians. They're formulating their plans. They're getting consultants involved. And so they're getting budgets prepared. So you're seeing a lot of the strategy and preparation um, moving too slow. 400,000 people will be affected because healthcare is inequitable. Again, Deloitte has this at 320 billion a year to the U.S. system, which is now closer to a trillion. Like, we have to go much faster. And so the good news is we're seeing that. We're seeing systems accelerate their processes. They're finding dollars, early, easy entry points. Um, and they're aware. I think the main drivers are really around We've got to satisfy the regulatory compliance that's being headed our way. Uh, morally, it's obviously the right thing to do. And we're seeing some economic benefit to addressing health equity, both from a revenue standpoint and a savings standpoint, which we could talk about more if interested. Um, Doc, I know that you have a lot of um, work that you need to do to continue pushing through one more question, if you wouldn't, if you would please entertain me. How do you think as a CEO attaching this product to demonstrable ROI? I mean, from a product perspective, because I can see a difficulty in getting attribution. Um, just because attribution is, is very hard no matter what you're doing as far as outcomes are concerned. How do you think about capturing that on the hospital level? Because, I, I mean, I think that the clear path would be to go to the payer route where you, the data can be a lot more, um, I guess, clear. But how do you think about attribution and ROI? Yeah, so I think about it in a couple of ways. Um, and let me give you some sort of foundational context as well for it. So first is, We've actually done an actuarial study. So we commissioned a large group of actuaries to look at all of the cost data. So we looked at the Medicare data and the limited data set. And we looked at treatment being delivered in different settings. And across the board, we found more expensive treatment for diverse populations without really understanding as to why. But to give you a sense for the orders of magnitude here, because I think it's an important point. So as an example, there's a 100,000 life ACO that we just did an analysis for. So not a huge population. For a 100,000 life group, there was $32 million of savings opportunity in their diverse populations, meaning this group had about 20% diversity, so not an overly diverse group. So in just 20,000 patients of a 100,000 life group, there's $32 million of savings potential, meaning if we could normalize their outcomes to best practice levels, 
which often coincide with you know the white population levels. But if we could sort of crosswalk that, there's 32 million dollars of savings there. It's a massive, massive ROI to target. The other part is that this has the ability, health equity has the ability to drive revenue. So I think one of the challenges in the space is that much like virtual care, it doesn't have good vernacular yet. When I say health equity, what does that actually mean to anybody? Right. right? It, it means lots of different things. Just like when we did, we started with telemedicine and then it became uh, 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 virtual care and then it became you know, digital care. And it, 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 it took all of its different permutations. I think the same thing in this space. We're not all clear on what we're saying. I think that health equity ultimately has to lead towards quality and quality means savings and cost and revenue. So going back to where we were headed on the revenue side, almost every health system has some sort of upside financial gain if their quality measures are better. So one other system with a very small pilot pool, uh, we're talking about 10,000 patients found $6 million of increased revenue if they could hit their quality measures for the diverse populations. And finally, there's 25 to 50% less procedural volume often for diverse populations. So there's procedures that health systems like to do, like hips, knees, total joints, bypass surgery, angiograms, that all generate a fair amount of revenue. The studies show that because the same tools uh, uh, change care delivery, they also screen patients away from necessary procedures. So there is a very compelling economic value proposition here, both on revenue generation and on cost savings to justify an ROI. Now, how do you measure it is what you get to. So I don't think the space has the right measures yet at all because we don't have the right language yet. What does health equity mean? Does it mean culturally competent care? Does it mean my doctors are trained well? Does it mean I've directed patients to health-related social needs? Does it mean I'm improving clinical outcomes? I think this this sector will take the form of what we know now, which is HEDIS measures, quality measures, hemoglobin A1C, readmission rates, like the standard quality measures that we're paid on. I think it's going to evolve into new measures as we further define health equity. But if I had a magic wand, what I would pick, I'd pick one, which is what you got to, which is engagement. Are we increasing the attribution of patients and clinicians in these necessary discussions. And that's a win right now because just the mere act of engagement will lead to better outcomes, cost savings profile and revenue profile. So we're in the early innings in this market. That's the sole one. And then you'll get a case study together and you look at all the claims data and you'll show true ROI. That's going to be a multi-year journey. So from a thesis standpoint, very, very sound with data. From a measuring standpoint, very sound the data. I think this market has to mature a little bit more to get the right measures to align to those things that you were asking about. And luckily, you are there probably first, so they can't really attribute any positive outcomes to anything but your platform at this given time. So. Well, we'll 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 make sure there's an arm's length third party to dissect all that and make sure that we're you know we're taking. But what we found in our early interventions were, and you know, we we're launched in in a few pilot sites. About twenty six percent of the care is yielding an intervention that was previously unaware of by the care teams and the patients. Right, three point two insights per patient. 15% of the patients are missing race data. So if we had even that additional information, we could show a lot more impact. So uh, 
these are not inconsequential amounts of people being impacted. And we're not talking like a fraction of a percentage of the population. 26% of patients having some sort of intervention with three interventions per patient is a pretty big number uh, to, to sort of look towards a better future state for these patients. It's meaningful. It's meaningful. Well, thank you, doctor, so much for coming on. If you like what you heard, please download and tell a friend. Um, if you want to reach Dr. Roga, you can find him on LinkedIn, especially if you are a hospital or health system executive investor and want to learn more about True Light Health. Um, he is available and uh, an incredible guy. Um, I got to know him over the last couple of years. We drop an episode every Tuesday. So all you have to do is put subscribe on all the major platforms and you'll get it directly in your inbox. And thank you so much. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Thank you for tuning in to the Capital Stack Podcast. Make sure to share this with someone you know that can benefit from this content. Remember to support this show by rating, reviewing, and subscribing. David Paul is the founder and general partner at DWP Capital. All opinions expressed by David and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of DWP Capital. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for decisions. David and guests may maintain positions in the securities discussed on this podcast.